We need to live in a world that's balanced, where every person is balanced between their masculine and their feminine. My hope, my prayer is that then that extends into the ways that we govern and the way that we run companies. It's a form of energetic exchange and it's important. From To Be Magnetic, this is The Expanded Podcast with your host, Lacey Phillips. destination for neural manifestation, we dispel the woo-woo in order to help you create real, tangible results based on neuroplasticity, psychology, epigenetics, and energetics. Our goal is to normalize the practice of manifestation and empower you to get into the driver's seat of your life in order to manifest the experiences, relationships, and things that most align with your authenticity. Part of our manifestation process entails expanding past your limiting subconscious beliefs. Therefore, by tuning into this podcast with interviews from experts, thought leaders, spiritual teachers, scientists, and those with neural manifestation success stories, you're starting the process of expanding your subconscious in order to see to believe that anything you desire is possible. And by pressing play, the process begins. Welcome back, everyone, to the Expanded Podcast. Jessica here. So as many of you have noticed from Instagram or Mighty Networks community group, we are now in week two of the Manifestation Challenge. Don't worry. We still have our sale going on, and you can sign up to join along at any time. It is not too late. We will have this challenge going on until January, so make sure to join on board. You can catch up over the holidays or just go at your own pace and take it day by day. It's set out in the challenge for you. We will have all of the resources and tools and graphics shared in a highlight on the To Be Magnetic page. So just make sure to tune in. People are already starting to manifest so many things on their mini list. People are getting free coffees, their perfect dog, an incredible vacation has popped up, and we're only on week two. So it'll be really cool to see what continues to come through for people and what they manifest on the other side. So check the show notes for a link to our sale code to get into the pathway for one of our lowest rates of the year. That again is for new members and can't be applied retroactively. So make sure to look out for new insights for the manifestation challenge. And we are so excited to connect with you. It's going to be an incredible year. And now a word from our partners. So I have a funny mini manifestation story for you. You've heard Jessica and I both talking about blue blocks the entire year and me personally a couple of years now, far before we partnered together this year to elevate this podcast and take it to the next level, bringing you top guests like we've been doing. What a beautiful story that we came to partner together. Within that, this is actually really cute because I'm one of those bedside readers. I love to read before bed to help me just really sink into quiet, calm, relaxed, and ready for sleep. 
However, I'm crazy. Speaking of blue blocks, you can listen to the two episodes I have with founder Andy Mant, where we talk about why I don't have any lights on in the bedroom in the evening. I only have candlelight. And so to read, it's really, really hard (laughs) in the candlelight. So I've been Googling actually for months and months, incandescent reading lamp, like a book reading lamp, the ones that you can clip to your book and read with and nothing comes up. And I'm like, why has somebody not invented this during this time? And then totally out of nowhere, founder Andy Mann shipped me one of their new products, which is their Lumi Clip Sleep Plus, which is exactly that. It's a rechargeable 100% blue and green light free little book clip light that houses their Sleep Plus technology. So not only does this allow me to read perfectly fine now, but it also doesn't provide any sleep disrupting blue and green light. It's flicker free, zero EMF, and on top of it all, it gives off a warm and relaxing campfire feel, just like the candle that's burning by my bedside. And so now I can actually read by the bedside. And literally when I opened this up, completely unexpected, didn't know it was coming to me, didn't know they had invented this. I opened it and I was like, ah, thank you universe. So it was a total mini manifestation. And I wanted to share that with you. It's only a $29 product. So if you're anything like me and you're a candle lighter, you would probably be lit up about that. So go ahead and check out www.blueblocks.com forward slash pages forward slash magnetic. The discount of 15% will automatically be added to your order or use the code all caps magnetic M-A-G-N-E-T-I-C for 15% off your order. One of our favorite brands that we've partnered with is Beekeepers Naturals. Not only that, but we've recorded an episode with founder Carly. You can see that linked below. And this season, I've particularly loved Beekeepers Naturals for immunity for a number of reasons. Because my body's been working so hard at producing milk, it means that there have been quite a few times that my immunity has dropped in the last couple of months. So without fail, I use the Bee Immune Throat Spray every single day, four squirts in the back of my throat. I, in fact, just used this last week, and the next day I woke up without a cold, which I was so, so, so grateful for. However, when we did get a cold about a month and a half ago, which I do believe in. I believe in the body really needs to deal with colds. I think it's really great to stimulate immunity once a year. And when that did happen, and of course I gave it to Max, I did save Teddy from getting it simply by squirting breast milk in her nose every couple of hours. But of course Max did get it. And so we definitely used their Bee Soothe Honey Lozenges, which were a total lifesaver. Not only soothing, but they have obviously the propolis, which is unbelievable, hands down for immunity, zinc and vitamin D. And then of course, my daily staple when I do have the luxury of taking a bath is I use their bee powered honey, which is propolis, royal jelly and the bee pollen on my face as a mask. Watch out if you start that ritual. Your face is going to be unbelievably glowy. Every time I do it, I always get a compliment. When I'm out and about, what are you doing with your skin? So I keep it in my bathtub at all times. 
What I think makes a big difference about beekeepers is it's almost like you have an entire medicine cabinet at your disposal inside your house, and it's all from the power of bees. You've heard me talk about it in prior partnership communications, but they take the highest standard when it comes to working with bees and the environment. Not only is it the most non-toxic and cleanest, but the way they treat their queen and their hives is unlike any other brand that we know of. So truly, I believe in this product that serves so many uses, and they do have a really cool new product out called Bee Biome, which is complete gut health. It's a pre, pro, and postbiotic, which supports gut health, microbiome, brain, and immune function, and helps regulate the inflammation that naturally occurs in the gut. If you are wanting to create your beekeeper's natural medicine cabinet, Go ahead and use the code, all caps, TBM, for 15% off at checkout. So again, that code is all caps, TBM, for 15% at checkout. All right, on to the episode. So excited for today's guest. You probably recognize her voice as the former co-host of the Goop podcast, Elise Lunin. She is also an author and editor and has co-written 11 books, including five New York Times bestsellers. She now has her own podcast, Pulling the Thread, which is absolutely fantastic. And Elise is coming out with her own book in 2022. Elise is such a huge expander for me when I first started co-hosting the expanded podcast, coming in with such a big audience and wanting to connect and resonate with all of you, but also wanting to be authentic to myself. I really had to look at other podcasters out there and it was quite a learning curve coming in, but I feel like I'm finally starting to get my footing. And I think looking to Elise, standing in her power and co-hosting with Gwyneth for so long really kind of helped expand me into seeing that it was possible for me to find my voice within the voice of the brand. So we had a really fun idea for this episode since Elise was a huge expander for me, but Elise is also good friends with Lacey. They've known each other since Lacey was on the Goop podcast and also spoke at the Goop Summit. So I get to ask Elise a couple of expander questions to kick off the episode. I think you guys will really enjoy it and it was a lot of fun. I think you guys are also going to love this episode. Without further ado, here is Elise Lunin. There are so many things. So obviously the term expander, you know, we've sort of coined in manifestation, Lacey's really coined. And it's this idea that someone is embodying an essence of yourself that you want to connect with deeper. They're showing you, they're leading by example and really sort of standing in their power to show you that it's possible for you as well. And coming into co-hosting on Expanded, I was like, I need female co-hosts to look at because I had my own podcast before, but it's kind of a different ballgame when you're co-hosting something and the dynamics there. 
It was funny. I read a recent article that you had written about there's no female podcast host, like in the grand scheme of the the biggest shows out there. The ones that are female are so few. And so I found myself wanting to find expanders who were podcast hosts, who were at a level that we were at or higher. And at the time, there was really such limited (laughs) resources to look at. And I had already listened to the Goop podcast and was just so excited to look to you for expansion because I think not only you an incredible interviewer, but you helped to sort of dissect the information that you're talking about in a way that relays it differently than what the guest is saying, which helps me learn so well. You're also extremely articulate and poised and graceful in your interviews. And it was just so expansive to to listen to you as I was sort of following into this role and expanded and seeing your growth and then now hosting your own podcast and going on and writing your book. It's just been so wonderful to see. Thank you. That's so kind. And I really appreciate it. And I love the idea of expanders and how you guys have helped jettison that into the mainstream as a reframe on what I think so many of us, or the way that I've always perceived it in my life without that language is envy. One of the reasons that I'm writing this book was this comment that Lori Gottlieb, the psychotherapist, made about how envy shows us what we want. And I think expanders and that idea is so important and crucial for women because we haven't been coached in that. Instead, we've been coached to feel like, oh, I want that or I want to be doing that. And then instead of letting that come up and processing that and understanding how to grow from that or what that information has, we shut it down. And that's how I was raised because it's so shameful. And then I think it gets us stuck in that scarcity mentality where there can only be one, right? There's only one Oprah, there's only one woman on the board. There's only one woman in the executive level. And that's a reality. That's a physical reality, obviously, in so many businesses and places. But I think that type of thinking keeps us small instead of, oh, look, like that is exactly what I'm going to do. And someone's doing it, which proves its possibility for me. And therefore, I can just continue to bushwhack and do it in my own way, but like achieve the same thing, surpass that and then expand for someone else. So I love that idea. I think it's so potent and powerful for women in particular to really lean into it so that we can change this not very helpful paradigm that we live in. Absolutely. Yeah. We always say, you know, envy is really your greatest expansion because so many times we're like, oh, we're envious. We don't want to interact with that person or that energy or whatever it is. It's like, if we're really digging deep, that person is showing us something that we really do want, you know, and what does that look like? And how can we, instead of approaching it with judgment and shame, can we approach it with an open heart and understanding and excavation? Yes. And it's exactly that. It's a limiting of shame, which I don't think is, it's not a bad intention. It's just that we subconsciously, so many of us, and I know that that's what you guys do is examine all of that programming that we're carrying, all those limiting beliefs, bringing them up so we can look at them and be like, that's ridiculous. All of these things obviously sound ridiculous, but we carry them. It's deep inside of us that, oh, if someone else is doing that thing, then I can't do it. And that person needs to be dethroned in order for me to be successful, or I need to denigrate them to make myself feel better because I haven't gotten there yet. It's such insidious 
programming for so many of us. It's not helpful. It's not helpful to all of us, but it's not helpful personally either when we're trying to birth ourselves into the world and show up in the way that we want to. So I think it's such a powerful legacy and obviously an ongoing one in terms of getting us all thinking. Cause I fall to this too, you know, where I'm like, Oh God, I'll never do that. Or I could never do that. And I feel bad about myself and, and envious. And now I feel gross and icky and just halting that I think is so, so important because as you mentioned, as you started, obviously when the Goop podcast launched, podcasts were not nearly as much of a thing as they are now. And it was bro land and it still is bro land to some extent. Obviously there have been a lot more women entering the fray and climbing the ranks of podcast charts, but it's still very dominated by men. And then what I also found, which was more, even in some ways more pernicious, is that men and some of the women were preferring to interview men, like men continue to be the ones who are chosen as the experts. So we are just aren't as used to hearing from women in positions of authority and power. And it's, again, another one of those insidious parts of culture that we're not really conscious of. I think now we're becoming much more aware of who we're listening to and why, but it's something that I wasn't actually really aware of until I got into podcasting, was picking guests and was trying to be really conscientious of like, whoa, I've done four men in a row. And it's hard because it's a systemic thing. It's hard to change these things. This is the patriarchy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's such an interesting thing. And it kind of parlays into one of my questions I had for you too, which is on the reverse side of that, when there is envy towards the one woman who might be in power, whatever it is, it also creates sort of this fear of being seen on the other end of, ooh, if I'm that one woman, I'm going to be judged extra harshly because I know a lot of people want this position or whatever it is. And how do I stay comfortable being seen? That's something that I'm working on this year. And it's so funny. I, I was sharing this with one of the TBM members we had seen recently. I was like, yeah, I'm working on being seen. And she's like, what do you mean? You're seen every week on the podcast. And it's like, I know, but there's a difference between showing up and then showing up more fully and trying to navigate what that looks like. So for you, you had a lot of public jobs before, but then even more so with the podcast and with the TV show and really being in the public eye, but then also being on the executive level, how did you navigate feeling comfortable being seen? And how did you go about showing up authentically? I mean, this is funny. You're working on that. I'm working on that as well. I just went to a retreat and that was the thing I gave to the fire was fear of being seen, figuring out how to authorize myself, literally, as I'm handing in this manuscript, having ghostwritten 12 books and stood behind the scenes of a lot of brands and people. It's certainly where I prefer to be, in part because, and and I, I think it's somewhat defensible because in this culture, and I'm sure you guys feel this, having TBM and, and Lacey being visible and increasingly visible, there's so much projection, right, that happens. And you start to represent something, people want to turn you into a guru, it gets complicated. And it's not safe, particularly for women. So for me, it's always been, I care about the information, and I want to be a a channel or a way for the information to come through. And then how do I keep myself out of it? I don't want to get bent or distorted. And you have to be really strong and have 
incredible internal resources for keeping it clean and being like, that's me, that's not me, that's me, that's not me. Because going back to sort of what we were talking about at the beginning, we're not very good collectively at parsing information and separating behavior from people. We love just to categorize and sort. And so when you become really visible, suddenly everything is associated with you that you might have ever said. And it's very sticky. It's very hard. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with it that for me felt also overwhelming, where I just want to give people the information. It can resonate or not. And it doesn't have to be about me. And then we live in a culture, though, where it is becoming, you know, more about who's the person saying it in the context of that. It's just very complicated. So I completely understand. I think it'll be a lifelong process for both of us, most likely. And it's not a cop out to hide. It's a line of how do you show up and still keep people from projecting on you? And how do you keep it clean? I don't know. I still haven't quite figured it out because... I think what you're doing, what you, what you guys are doing at TBM and what you guys are doing on this podcast, so much of it is about helping people figure out who they are and how what they hear can help them understand themselves better. In a way, the less they identify, the less messy it is. I don't know. As you can tell, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that in and of itself is so expansive to me because I'm like, here's this woman so successful, incredible at what she does, and you're still navigating it. And so that gives me sort of a breath of fresh air of, I don't have to be perfect at this. I can be navigating this. This is part of my journey. Okay, great. Elise is doing this amazing work and she's navigating it too. And so I think even just knowing that piece gives me space and solace to navigate on my own time and terms. Yes, you definitely need the space. And it's, I think it's an iterative, ongoing process. And some days you're going to be like, I feel comfortable. And other times you're going to be like, it's time for me to hide. (laughs) And I think it changes with the seasons. Tim Ferriss said on a podcast how, you know, when he releases really vulnerable episodes, he'll have his team hide all comments, feedback. He doesn't want to hear it unless it's like really critical that he hears what's going on for his mental state. He's like, no boundary. And I thought that was so powerful because, you know, in the beginning I would read every comment, every piece of feedback. And then I was like, all right, maybe this is not a great thing for my mental health to read every piece of comment and feedback. So it's interesting to see that, that growth and that, oh, wait, I can have boundaries with this. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're also trying to do this at a time when culture is changing daily and the ways that we interact with each other are becoming more and more complex and more extra, you know, mm-hmm. in a way and, and more immediate. And I will say working at Goop was really helpful in this way. I don't know if this is specifically for women. I can only sort of speak from that perspective, but learning how to take criticism and figuring out what's accurate and what's helpful versus what's a projection and what's not was like one of the biggest lessons that I learned over the time that I spent there because obviously it's a brand that gets a lot of blowback. And so I had to get tougher and thicker about what I would take in and what I could let go. Still hard, obviously. It's interesting, even having a relatively small, comparatively small profile and, and doing my podcast and looking at sort of comments, which for the most part are really lovely and kind, but then the person who will come in and just drop something. And it's like, wow, why? 
it's really interesting, but it says so much more about the person than it does about you. And the minute you can sort of recover from that immediate sort of shock of, ouch. And then when you can really look at it and be like, does this hurt? Does this really hurt? Or am I just surprised that someone felt like littering this on my Instagram? You can mine it for either useful information or durability. Absolutely. Oh, thank you, Elise, so much. This was so helpful and expansive and been such an honor to chat with you. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to reconnect with you. I know. How are you? Besides being a new mom. You know, I'm a zombie, but I'm (laughs) in like a total bliss bubble. And there's so much to segue into what you and Jessica were talking about, because in this space, I've kept myself extremely protected. So I can't wait to jump into all of that. But first, how are you? I'm doing well. I mean, like for everyone, this has been a wild and interesting time of primarily highs to mediums and some lows, but I'm good. Like I just passed in the manuscript for my book and I'm waiting to hear the feedback so that I can start working on it again. Writing a book is so fun. Editing a book is horrible. And then you're in this suspended state for a really long time, wondering if anyone will buy it and read it and find it helpful. So I'm at the not fun part of that journey, but that's okay. I mean, this is why one of the many reasons I've resisted writing a book. (laughs) It's been a request for so long. You're obviously very different in the space. You've, you know, co-written and helped author many books, but I see a lot of my friends and that's their big goal. It's like, I got to get the book deal. I got to get the book deal. And I'm such a businesswoman as well that I'm like, wait, you do all of that. And then there's no real payoff at the end of it. I mean, there is, you know, depending on who you are and how you sell and all of that good stuff. But for me, it just hasn't lit me up. So I'm so impressed when somebody has completed that process because I don't think many people know how excruciating and long it can be. It is excruciating and long. It's not even that you're a business person. I think you just understand intuitively and through practice different formats and and mediums. And you can reach so many people, you understand formatting and you understand how to program. And -hmm. so I think books often, it is this totem of respectability and some sort of nebulous finish line in people's minds of like, once there's a book in the world that's printed, I matter or I exist, or there's some sort of permanent legacy, which is completely a reasonable understanding But as you said, it's really hard. You know, there's so many books and you spend so long on it and then it can either sort of sink to the bottom of the pond or on the rare chance that it really takes off and find a readership, it can have an extended, really powerful life. But I think it's not, it's not the panacea that people think that it is. And so if you don't enjoy the process of writing and It doesn't have to be a book. You know, there's so many books too that would be better articles or even better audio or better digital that I think people have that instinct and then are often, as you said, disappointed because it's long and slow in a world that is very fast and your chances of breaking through are slim. So many books sell 
so few copies. And then you put that in the context of online when you can reach everyone everywhere immediately, it starts to feel like, how is this worth it? But if you love the process, then it is so enriching. And writing my book changed me in a way that I'll be so grateful for forever. And it had to be a book. And it's so funny. I feel like any time I touch base with you or check in with you, what you're up to, you're reading. So, <laughs> so <laughs> it also makes sense to me, it seems. Not only are you a lover of information, but I think you also really love that format to what I've perceived. Yes, this is very accurate, Lacey. I really, really love the format. And I think that's another Point. Not that this is a podcast just about writing books, but if you don't like to read books, don't write a book because reading books, you just inherently absorb the structure in a way that I think is really, really helpful. So I've had friends, similarly experts, psychologists, therapists, et cetera, who are like, oh, I need to write a book. And I'm like, but you don't read. So it's probably not your medium. But yes, I do. I love, love to read. Well, we're going to touch back in on the book quite a bit, but I want to do a tiny pivot. Number one, what is your sun, moon, and rising in astrology, if you know all of them? I know. I mean, I'm a Sag, but I'm trying to think of what my moon... I'm going to have to find out. I'm so embarrassed that I don't know it. Honestly, if you're living in Los Angeles, I say this as a PSA to anybody, I feel like being in Topanga, at least, it's like it would be on your business card if somebody has I it. I know, right? It's so frequently asked in, in my little circle. I definitely get that question a lot. That's so funny. And then secondly, am I correct that your two sons' names are Max and Sam? Yes. So my partner, his name is Max and his brother is Sam. Oh, no way. Yeah, it's wild. When I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so sweet. Uh, Great, simple names. So simple. And his mom always said, Max at least, that she wanted to give them names. Somebody who had studied early childhood development, she wanted to give them names that would be really easy for them to spell when they were learning how to spell. Mm, I love that. That's so sweet. And for you, how was navigating, I mean, obviously a huge transition, the Goop transition over to your own brand, but also the pandemic with kids. That was one piece during the whole process that I was like, I am so grateful to not have school-age kids during this process. I don't know if I would be able to cope. So I have so much, you know, respect for how parents had to navigate. I would think that that would be one of the hardest, hardest parts of navigating that process. So my youngest was still in preschool, which was fantastic because they pretty much stayed open the whole time and were outdoors. And so he had continuity and wasn't even really aware of wearing a mask. Like it just doesn't bother him. But my oldest, who was in second grade, or I guess he was the end of first grade, it was actually awful and amazing as, you know, a full-time exact and I would record the podcast in person. It's just how I like to do it. So I traveled all the time. And it's funny because as soon as we were grounded, I was on a flight two days probably before we shut the office. Right at that moment, I flew to North Carolina. I did three interviews, one with Kate Bowler, another man whose wife has cancer. And I was like, I don't know if we're supposed to hug. Like It was just one of those weird moments. And then when I got on the flight to come home, I was like, oh, this is happening. There was like an air in the airplane of people being like, I don't want to touch you. And I think I went into the office for one day and then we shut it down. And I thought I didn't know how I would handle being home like that. And then I realized 
as I relaxed into it almost immediately, I was like, oh, I actually wasn't trying to like escape my family. That sounds mean, but I didn't like being in an office. And I enjoyed having like the, even the plane rides or being in cities by myself. It was really hard for me to be around so many people all the time. So that was the first revelation. Being at home with just my kids and our um, nanny moved in with us, which was amazing and so fun. And to share space with my kids like that after being so peripatetic for so long and everyone going in different directions all the time was such a relief in a way that I didn't realize it would be. So yeah, at the beginning, it was it was awful in the way of, oh shit, like who's putting him on his next Zoom and he has, you know, tension issues and no kids are really built to sit in front of a computer like that, but he was certainly struggling. But to actually be able to be with him while he was doing that was really good and really interesting. And it gave me so much insight into him and how he processes and thinks that it, it ended up being an incredible gift. And obviously, as mentioned, we had help. So for my friends who didn't have any help going into the pandemic, whose kids were in school and no longer had help, it was a totally different story. But we kind of made it fun and figured out how to sort of pot up at our park and be outside and be together in a way that was really nice. I think that's so sweet. It's such a beautiful silver lining, I guess, through it all. I mean, I have to admit over here on our end, because we are in a more remote location and we already, as a brand and team, I've always kept it remote. Like you, I need so much space and I would actually hate to be around in an office with people all day. And so, you know, we were really privileged in the sense that it didn't affect us very much. And it actually, for Max and I, turned out to be a really beautiful thing, having just gotten this property and it needed so much work and we just found so much love through gardening. And and so I guess it's it's great to share the good stories as well, because I've heard a lot of the hardships that people have gone through through that time. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are scared to share. Understandably, it became this we had this somehow this idea that we were all supposed to be having this singular experience because it's the first time we've ever had this worldwide event. I mean, it's so wild that I think we also felt like if we weren't representing the same experience, that we were having a different time, that that was somehow bad. And so even when I've spoken to friends who really struggled at times, they were like, oh, other times it was amazing. I think that's why we're still in it in the sacred time out before we ever go back to how things were. Agreed. Agreed. So I'm quickly interrupting this episode to invite you if you're ready to start your manifestation journey, or if anything you've heard in our manifestation episodes has piqued your interest to begin. We have a la carte workshops in everything from the basics bundle, which is what we recommend to everyone who starts. It's the formula that actually teaches you how to manifest, unblocked inner child, and unblocked shadow. We also have a la carte workshops on love and money. But the real gem is the Pathway membership because it encompasses every single workshop we have. It's a year-long membership with full access to the few a la carte offerings we have and exclusive workshops not available anywhere else 
such as the daily practice, which is what everybody in the pathway uses, hopefully at least three times a week to daily in order to truly create the new neural pathways that one needs in order to manifest and houses the library of our deep imaginings, which is our unique hypnosis process that allows you to get into your subconscious and overwrite those old neural pathways, creating the new ones. And for a limited time, we have our winter sale going on. So check the show notes if you are a new member signing up for a discount in order to join the pathway. Okay, now back to the episode. Well, you and Jessica got to touch a bit on the book, and I really think it's a potent conversation that many people are, I don't want to say afraid to have, but I think that a lot of things from what I know about the book that it touches on, I do believe it will be a beautiful breath of fresh air for many, many who, like you said, have been visible for women in general. And yeah, let's just sort of, you know, refresh and highlight that a little bit more for the listenership, even though you guys got to dig in a tiny bit. Yeah. So it's a book about women and the patriarchy and the ways in which we police ourselves and police each other. It's about how we're programmed culturally in ways that are not part of our conscious awareness and that we're told that how things have always been or how we are, you know, a lot of these sicky myths about early prehistory and cavemen and hunters and gatherers and all of the stuff and the way that it still shows up in our lives and limits the ways that we engage with each other. But it's for women, what I'm writing about specifically is this morality map of goodness that we've, so many of us, or at least I as like sort of middle-class white woman was raised, even with progressive hippie parents, to believe that I needed to behave in certain ways in order to be seen as good and worthy of belonging. And so the structure of the book is the seven deadly sins, which sounds silly. You're like, oh, that's so funny. That's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting and nobody really cares about the seven deadly sins unless you're, you know, Catholic. But The reality is when I started to look at them, and it started with envy, interestingly, they're all things that women seem to specifically, especially struggle with. Gluttony, lust, greed, sloth, pride, wrath. Not that they don't persecute men, but it's certainly not in the same way or to the same extent. So it's the ways in which we keep ourselves small and then turn and keep each other small as well. When we don't give ourselves permission, we don't give other people permission either. So that's the general structure. And it's it's part memoir, part sort of synthesis of experts and other really interesting people who have written and thought about these ideas, and then some cultural criticism. So it's sort of a, a hodgepodge book, but just really trying to get at how these show up in my own life. And then hopefully as a rubric for conversation for people to examine how they show up in their own lives, because we don't really talk about this stuff. Greed, for example, like women, we don't really talk about money. We think of it as being base and immoral and dirty. And, but the reality is it's a form of energetic exchange and it's important. But it was an intense book to write and I'm not done. I'm still editing it, but hopefully it will help or at least put some wedges into conversations. 
This is something I theorize a lot. And, you know, for anyone listening, do forgive me. I didn't even go to college over here. I'm just, I like to philosophize often. So somebody who's ill-educated on this topic in every way, shape, and form, but I do sit and think about it often. When you were doing your research, or certainly when you were working with experts, where was one of the really pivotal starting points for patriarchy kind of taking precedence and then women losing rights and power. Because when I theorize this, again, please don't crucify me, anybody, completely uneducated in this. It doesn't matter. I mean, don't get me started on pedigreed education. It's yeah. as someone who has one. <laughs> I'm often, you know, and in, in my, I'll say my mother-in-law, I talked to her about this and she is an academic, but I'm like, to me, philosophically, as far back as I understand and know, it seems that really religion, you know, that really developed so much of the patriarchy, even from just the very simplicity of taking us away from focusing on natural cycles of nature. And so, yeah, to me, that's where it seems was a really big starting point. But again, I understand there was patriarchy in indigenous cultures, et cetera, et cetera. But I just don't know. I'd love to hear what came up in your research. Yeah, no one knows, obviously, for certain. And what's always hilarious is that as they've gone back and looked at a lot of the assumptions that were made about our prehistory, like this anthropologist, Dean Snow, who went back and looked at like cave paintings. And the assumption had always been that they'd been painted by men, obviously, and that they were (laughs) weapons of war. And then when they went back and used sort of updated science to assess them, they were like, actually, these are women's hands and they're painting plants. That's why the spears inverse. And, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous stuff like that. And like, there's an amazing anthropologist who lived, he was actually in the 40s, contested race theory, Ashley Montague. And he has always been very vocal about the fact that really we were gatherer hunters. We hunted very rarely and we gathered, we foraged, we ate snails, frogs, nuts, berries, and everyone participated equally in sort of the economy. So there are a couple of people who, for those who are interested, Rianne Eisler, I just interviewed her on my podcast, actually. She's I think in her 80s now, she wrote many, many, many incredible books. One that she's most famous for was first published in the 80s called The Chalice and the Blade. She's a historian and an incredible thinker around systems. So she talks about her theory, which is the one that I lean on the most, that in our prehistory, as you alluded to, like we were affiliative partnership-based societies probably not matriarchal, like not dominance-based, not hierarchy-based. Like we were surviving together through codependency, really, um, or interdependence and helping each other make it. There was no property to pass down. There was no sense of hoarding. There was this idea of living within the seasons, deep reverence for women as sacred vessels and creative beings. And the patriarchy, I'm trying to think of exactly when they date it to, but but her theory, which is that these tribes, these warring tribes of Kurgan started moving from more arid or droughty parts of the world. And that was sort of the advent of war, which hadn't necessarily existed. And there's a lot of really fascinating archaeological evidence that like Atlantis was maybe Crete and they were so far ahead, eons ahead with plumbing and all of these scientific advancements 
So there's also this idea that we have that progress is always linear and they don't think is true either, that, that sort of civilizations came and went and were far more progressive than what was happening in other parts of the world. So there's this theory that the Kurgans came, started pillaging, raping, enslaving, and that was really when the patriarchy and this idea of dominance and oppression became an organizing structure or principle in society and that it wasn't our legacy traditionally or originally. And then you get into how it developed and you brought up religion. And of course, before that, it was pagan. It was much more nature oriented, much more focused on women. And that was just sort of, I think, beaten out of us over centuries. You get into the witch hunts, you get into the way that women became persecuted and certainly religion and Christianity was a huge part of it. And what's so wild, which I didn't really realize because I grew up, my dad's Jewish and my mom is a, a very lapsed Catholic, like a, a pretty traumatized Catholic who hates organized religion. And I didn't really know anything about religion growing up. Same. And yeah, so it was, I just thought that these books existed. And then I, several years ago, I read Megan Watterson's book, Mary Magdalene Revealed. And then got really into the Gnostic Gospels and Elaine Pagel's work. So the history of Christianity is that, you know, Jesus was a man. And I'm actually a huge Jesus fan. Same, and same. All about Jesus. I Like Christ consciousness is just bananas to me. Also, no, we need to talk about Jesus's healing powers too. I think yes. that gets really swept under. Yes, Jesus was a healer, a balancer. And it was hundreds of years, 300, I think 313 years that the New Testament became a thing. And between that time, it was the Christians were these heretical tribes, like they were killed and tortured and they were primarily, you know, Gnostic people who did not believe there should be a church. That was what Jesus was preaching, that like God was within each of us. There was no church. And when they put the New Testament together, they kicked out a bunch of books, including the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Philip and some of the most incredible gospels were deemed heretical and destroyed. And as someone who is so novice at this, the New Testament is what brought Adam and Eve. Am I correct about that? No, that's so that's Genesis. That's like that's Genesis. The, but there are gen there are like so many versions of Genesis. I see. But the New Testament, which I'm I'm not a theologian by any means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it it doesn't have the voice of the feminine. The Gospel of Mary, for those who are interested, is amazing. It's a beautiful gospel. They recovered two copies of it. It really wasn't studied or published until like the 80s or something. And what it puts forward is Mary was the one who was at his tomb when he ascended. And she sort of puts forth her version of that and of talking to Christ when he resurrected. And he's saying like, God is within you. It's the same thing. It's this direct connection to the divine. And it's so beautiful. And it makes complete sense, of course, that it was threatening to this church. And what happened is the Roman government, they decided to sort of adopt Christianity, make it the religion, put it into the same three rank hierarchy and make it a thing. And they weaponized it and used it to corral and control people. And they established this idea that it's patriarchal and that you really only, you know, you need to go to a priest. It has to be mediated through a third party and the sins were invented in the fourth century or created as these eight deadly thoughts by this monk 
in the Egyptian desert, Evagrius Ponticus, who also, they think, created the Enneagram. Wow. But then these things are like a game of telephone, you know, and then suddenly it's, we think of these as part of the Bible. The seven deadly sins aren't even in the Bible. It's all cultural. It's all invented. And then it becomes these strings that keep us... Like dogmatic. Yeah. It's so interesting. And we sort of take these things as wholesale and and don't really know where they came from. They're just part of us. As a spiritual person, this is something I'm going to have to truly dig into one day because yes. I just find it all really interesting. And, you know, I hope we're not offending too many people with this conversation because as you're laying out, it's just, uh, you know, research and facts and et cetera. But I know it can be very triggering for people not to get too far off on this, but I love that you did use the seven deadly sins because as you were talking about them, I can think of all of them being a trigger in my life at some point or having the messaging around them as a woman being problematic. Yes. Isn't it wild? It's pretty amazing and interesting. Yeah. You know, I think we think about, and obviously it starts in our own families and it starts how we parent and how we were parented, et cetera. But like you can have the most amazing parents in the world and you're still in the culture. It's still being whispered into your ear and coached into you and you pick it up telepathically. And so as you know, in your life's work, we're driven by things that we're not really consciously aware of. But I do think that socially we're getting to a place and we see this obviously with BLM and white supremacy and this idea of systemic racism where people are sort of grokking this idea finally of, oh, I'm not racist, but it doesn't mean that I'm not participating in a racist system or structure over which I have very little control. And biases that truly, like you're saying, have been programmed into us. Exactly. And so I think we're all sort of waking up and then waking up more. And in a way, patriarchy is like the master system of all of these other oppressive, you know, it's, it's the master system of racism and misogyny and xenophobia and this like you, you can hang with us or you can't. You are protected by the patriarchy or you exist in its margins. And women, white women in particular, are really like in this weird no man's land of understanding both sides and then being forced to some ways to reconcile it. And we don't have the tools or the language or I think even the understanding to know where to put it or how to process it. We're in a twisted place of recognizing our privilege and then also being like, but I don't know how to fix this and, and but I don't have that much power. You know, it's, it's complicated and we need to be leaning into those conversations and finding the durability and temerity to really sit in it and process it and talk about it and think about how to move forward. But so many of us also, because of this good girl conditioning, lack the durability and resilience to do it because it's so scary. And so we rather just not. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this might be too much of a philosophical pivot, but I do imagine you've theorized this before and sat often, especially that your book is so rooted in the patriarchy. To me, I mean, to all of us in society, the patriarchy is so embedded, you know, and it's it's generation and generation after generation. 
what does the true, you know, quote unquote, the Aquarian age or, or a society that isn't, or even a business that isn't still rooted in like deep capitalism and patriarchy really look like? Because I was having an interesting conversation not long ago with Zach Bush and, you know, he's been spending a lot of time with tribes and indigenous cultures and obviously learning so much. And, and it was such a profound conversation, but I'm like, oh, wait, didn't we try that experiment in the sixties? And that's why all of my friends are taking care of their hippie parents without any retirements and stuff, because (laughs) it is so, (laughs) it's so deep, you know, like the system is so deep. So it's like, I I mean, what are your thoughts just around, like now you get a Sag and an Aquarius talking and I mean, we're just going to go out there, but I'm (laughs) genuinely so curious right now of like, when you look at this, or as you're carving out your company now, your own brand, you know, having researched this so much, like, what does that look like? And one that's with equity and profitability. Yeah, I just don't know what that looks like, literally. I think that's an uh, uh, the question. And Rianne Eisler, who I had mentioned, like that's a lot of the focus of her work is like the caring economy and how we replumb markets. Not all parts of the patriarchy are bad in the sense of like we need organizing principles and laws and governance and markets and some version of capitalism. But as you said, there's been this problem, particularly with, with white feminism And it goes back to like the suffragettes, right? And how they were willing to sort of lean into racism at the time in order to try to win white women, specifically the vote. It's not that they themselves were racist, but they recognized that their best shot of getting Southern men and other racist men on board was to, to, because it's complicated, but essentially like Black men had been enfranchised, although they were limited from voting by like poll taxes and all sorts of literacy tests and all sorts of fucked upness. But the suffragettes were like, you need to give women the vote because then we can overpower Black people in the polls. So they use racism in order to try to win the vote with the argument, well, once women have the vote, then all votes rise. Like then we can take care of everyone because we'll be this governing civilizing force. And women have fallen for that over the ages. And we still see that in corporate capitalism, which is, oh, well, if we have a female CEO, if we elect more women, everything will be better. And that might be true to some extent, but it's the same toxic patriarchal system. And so you're just having women behave in toxic patriarchal ways. And I think part of it is that, you know, we each have feminine and masculine power or energy, right? I'm sure people who listen to this podcast understand those ideas, but that's not something that's super mainstream. But you have your masculine, you have your feminine. I'm very much in my masculine. I can be more in my masculine. We we are very much so. (laughs) I think we're two women that are. Yeah, exactly. And so figuring out how to balance those two energies in myself, how to receive, how to be nurtured, how to be nurturing, that's been a big part of my life's work. And so in terms of coming to balance, so we need to live in a world that's not a a matriarchy per se, but that's balanced where every person is balanced between their masculine and their feminine. And my hope, my prayer is that then that extends into the ways that we govern and the way that we run companies where we are ordered and structured and honest in the finest form of our masculine And that we're also creative, nurturing, and caring in the finest form of our feminine. And that we can start to create companies that are focused on 
stakeholders, not shareholders, but that really it's about, you know, a complicated bottom line that takes into account the planet and people and, but it's going to require like that balancing in each and every man and every woman. I know we're really into this idea of representation right now, culturally, which is obviously very important, but that alone won't fix it. Just as, you know, like putting women CEOs, it's got to be the full picture. It has to be the full picture. And I think it's going to be, it, it, part of it is rescuing men from the patriarchy too, and recognizing the difference between the patriarchy and men. I think that's a really important line. You articulated that in a way that I haven't quite been able to. I've gotten in a lot of trouble for saying I don't identify as a feminist, just not quite knowing how to articulate that the future is female isn't quite the way that I identify. I think exactly what you're talking about is that we all need healing essentially from the system. And I love exactly the way that you're talking about it, the balance, getting back into that we all play a role kind of at the beginning, at the top of the research that you were talking about, essentially, is what it seems like you might be leading towards. Yeah, because part of what I was thinking about in the book is I was like going through my life and thinking about like who have been the more the more beneficent and the more pernicious actors, right? And it's a mixed bag. Some of my favorite bosses have been men who have been champions and incredible mentors and supportive and have paid me really well and cared about ensuring that I have plenty of time to be with my kids. So this, the sort of idea of like men are bad, women are good. It only gets us so far. And like, I'm certainly a feminist, but by being a feminist, I'm not anti-male. I have two boys. I love my husband dearly. And I recognize the ways in which my husband has been victimized by the patriarchy or that sort of structure of how he needs to be and show up in the world. And I certainly don't want that to happen to my sons. I want them to have their full freedom of expression. I want them to cry. I want them to care and be empathic and nurturing. And maybe they just want to be dads when they grow up. As part of this, yes, we need equity for women And yes, we need to recognize the ways that these systems hurt all of us. No, I I totally agree. And making the disclaimer here, I absolutely identify as a feminist as well. (laughs) I do believe in equity, but exactly the way you are articulating it is exactly my same belief system. You're not anti. It's like that needing to figure out who the person to blame is. It's like, I mean, there are clearly toxic people that need to be held accountable. And I'm not saying that at all, but like part of this is a reckoning with what's the puzzle board that's holding us in place. And then how do we begin to address that? I love that. That's really hopeful. Yeah. So much to say here. So much to talk about. (laughs) And I could just go on and on about that, but amazing. And when do we, because I think your book, obviously you're going to go through the rewrites, et cetera. That I'm like, now when do I get to read this? <laughs> well, I'll send you an advanced copy as soon as I have them. Hopefully my book will be out in January of 2023, assuming that we can get it finished by January, which is what we're aiming for. Wonderful. But as you know, these things take forever. And then in the interim, I'm just hosting my podcast and thinking about these things and trying to figure it out. How do we move from where we are to where we need to be? And the focus of the podcast, because everyone should go listen. Tell us what we have to look forward to, because I know you just launched it not long ago, so there's much to anticipate. It's new. You're going to have to come on. It's similar to the conversations that I was having on the Goop podcast in that it's an interview series 
once a week at this point, exploring a lot of these things that we're talking about, like patriarchy, how that shows up in our lives emotionally. It's people like Harriet Lerner, who wrote The Dance of Anger, talking about processing our feelings, anger, self-definition and boundaries. It's people like Heather McGee talking about zero-sum thinking or Terry Real, for example, in terms of men and the patriarchy talking about how male depression shows up in really covert ways and how wounded boys become wounding men, which many of us have experienced. So it's similar. It's similar to sort of our conversation today. Lots of authors, as which won't surprise you. <laughs> and just di- hopefully different roads. Like I think the power of any conversation is that hopefully there's one or two small moments where someone is like, oh, that resonates or that's me or that actually puts something into context that I've been struggling to understand. That's what I'm going for. And then it looks to me, obviously through social media, like you've found a beautiful balance between Los Angeles and Montana. Am I right about that? I would like more of a balance, but yes, I am from Montana and I've been going back a lot to ride horses. I grew up riding horses, going back this winter to ski again, finally, since COVID. Yeah. I mean, it looks like you're going to Yosemite. I mean, I think we're all being called back to nature in a profound way and recognizing how deeply we need the planet, hopefully before it's too late. I know. I know, I know. (laughs) That's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) I mean, it's one that I think about at 3 a.m. when I'm not sleeping. But for you, I'm curious because I, I have a certain feeling when you are back in Montana, what is the feeling that it invokes in you? And I might be alluding, and maybe you don't have this, but I certainly get a feeling back home in, I'm so lucky where home is like you. There's so much wrapped up in it of peace now and safety, connection, invisibility when needed, you know, in a visible career, just home. What does that mean for you? Because this is something I want people to think about. And again, not everybody has this experience, A, with what their biological home is or town, but that you can create this. So I'm just curious what it invokes in you. Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, Montana, for those who haven't been, is majestic. And so for me, it inspires awe and wonder and the context of being a very small person at a small moment in time, much, much, much bigger tapestry. So in that sense, it's a right-sizing for me and a moment of bigger reflection. And then when I go and I ride horses, It is, for me, about surrender and stillness and the illusion of control that I think we all (laughs) desperately want. And I think horses can be the greatest teachers because in some ways they let you feel like you're determining and dictating the pace and where you're going to go. And that's true to some extent, but there's really no question about who in that equation is the passenger and who has more power and in some ways more sensibility and sensitivity to place and energy. So I find it to be a moving meditation and a reminder of how elusive control is and how co-creative life is and just needing to let that happen. And, And writing is so much more pleasurable when you can relax into it instead of gripping 
which so many of us, it's our natural inclination is to white knuckle it. Exactly what you're highlighting is so crucial to me because I grew up like my dad's a roper at one point was almost a pro roper. We have a ranch in my hometown and horses were like taking a bath. You know, it's like that's how natural it was. And when I was younger and immortal feeling, I surfed and rode, but both I'm very afraid of now. Both. I look at the ocean and I'm like, you are so much more powerful than me. Who do I think I am to like enter you? And I I feel that the crux of it is control, obviously. So like when I do ride even today, I, I get up and it's very familiar. You know, I took my daughter, even when she was like six weeks old, to go, you know, watch my dad rope, which is questionable in itself as a, you know, <laughs> as a practice that still exists. You know, whenever I bring my friends from LA, they're like, oh, and I'm like, I know it's, yeah, it's, it's a thing, but it's a culture. It's a culture. Anyway, all of this to say I got up in shorts, no problem, sandals, like I feel comfortable, but I white knuckle the whole time because I'm like, you could hurt me. I don't understand you all of the way. I don't have that gift of of intuiting fully where you're at and I'm afraid of you. (laughs) So I'd love to hear your thoughts just on control and that in general as having that gift. Oh, it's so interesting. And I took a big break from horses because growing up, I did, they were called endurance rides. They're sort of marathoning with horses. And I did it with my dad and we traveled all over sort of the Western part of the United States. And it was such an incredible way to experience nature and requires like a tremendous amount of training, as you can imagine, lots and lots and lots of miles. And I had this black Arabian horse named Ebony and he had this childhood injury, which had healed, not fully. We didn't realize. And I was out on a ride with him and I was slow poke. I'd ride with these older women, sort of grandmother types on these 50 mile rides. And we were a couple miles from the end, just trotting, and Ebony stepped on a round rock in west, western Washington and effectively like sort of rolled his ankle but broke his toe. Mm. And oh. it was so traumatizing. I mean, when I say this horse was my best friend, this horse was my best friend. And I knew immediately what it was intuitively. Everyone was like, it's just a torn Achilles. I was like, no, he's, he's broken his toe. I got a, a horse encyclopedia. I was like, I know this was what it is. We trailered him home. We took him to this incredible vet. Thank God my parents invested in surgery for him and saved his life. And then he needed a lot of rehabilitation and we lived outside of town and it was dark early and I couldn't walk him the miles that he needed every day. And the woman who had sold him to me really wanted him back to rehabilitate him. And so I gave him back and I never, I could never see him again. (gasps) And it was so sad. I felt so responsible. And then I, I went back to Montana to take my kids riding. It was like kind of one of the first times I've been back on a horse and I had to do like a lot of healing around it. And one of the things was Ebony came to me in a journey. I was not on drugs, but I had the sense of of Ebony and we had a conversation. Effectively, he was like, you are not the master of the universe. Like you can't control what happens always. And you needed to let other people take care of me. And that in of itself was a gift. And we had this whole conversation. I worked with it for like months 
in part to get back to a place of really loving to ride again. And it came back to that question of like, who's more powerful? Who's responsible? Sometimes feeling guilty is a way of feeling like you have control, which sounds weird, but somehow my guilt made me feel like I had control over what happened to Ebony in a way that he was like, you didn't actually have control over that. So I don't know. I find horses just very wise. And I feel like you can also sense a personality. Like there are very few mean horses in my experience for the most part, like they want to protect you and take care of you. That surrender of just letting yourself go. Like I remember on one of the first rides, I ditched my husband and my brother who weren't riding as fast and went with a much faster group. And they let us go full on through this meadow, full gallop when you're just flying. And I was crying. I was so happy. I just like had reconnected with some part of myself that I hadn't really visited since I was little. My husband was like, you were crying tears of joy. That is, he did not understand it at all. And he was like, this is so uncomfortable. I don't like this at all. How are you crying tears of joy? I was like, you don't understand. But there's something about letting yourself be carried and trusting and just giving it over. And you don't let go of the reins, but you kind of let go of the reins. And that's hard. But letting myself be carried in that way has been so nourishing. Well, I think it certainly gets back to learning how to balance our masculine and feminine. Yeah. And just two very masculine women, you know, I would say, even hearing you talk about that, I'm like, wow, have I ever really felt that? So I understand how powerful that that would have been and probably continues to be. I guess that can be the, you know, theme of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> patriarchy and systems and, <laughs> and truly coming back into balance and resonance, you know, as the humanity as an earth, as a people. Yeah, that's so powerful. So powerful. Oh, wow. We have a lot more to talk about. I know. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll come on mine. I and can't maybe I wait. can come back when my book comes out and we can get into it. I was just going to say, I'm so curious to continue that conversation, especially once things have been more finalized, because who knows what direction things could go in during these rewrite processes, but in editing. But I'm just so proud of you and so happy for you and really excited that you're on your own and that we can all tune in and still enjoy and hear your really thoughtful conversations. Thank you. I so appreciate it. Where do we find you? I mean, we all know where to find you, but like, where does somebody find you who's like, where's Elise? (laughs) Where's Elise? So my podcast is called Pulling the Thread and it's available everywhere. And then I have a site I write blog posts on occasionally at EliseLuna.com or Instagram. I rarely tweet, but I try to post on Instagram sometimes. I'm learning all of these things. I'm learning how to be myself in the world. Yeah, which has been kind of the theme. So, well, thank you so much. So grateful for this conversation. Well, I'm grateful for you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, we did. And in case you're not totally ready to join the pathway yet, I wanted to share a few of our free offerings that I'll often suggest to people as a little bit of a blueprint to get them started on their manifestation journey. The first place I like to direct people completely for free is the motivation. 
You can see it linked below or on our homepage as our testimony library. And it's categorized by different subjects, whether you're calling in career, money, love, wellness, and much more. When you're reading about a member's experience of what they manifested, you're actually seeing to believe and showing your subconscious that that very thing is possible for you. The second place I like to direct people is to the free clarity exercise, which is also linked below. In it, you get to try our own unique hypnosis process, learn about the science and some journaling prompts. And the best part about this, you'll get a tiny taste of what it's like to go into your hypnotic state, bring your subconscious forward and create new neural pathways while receiving clarity. And the third thing, if you haven't listened to it on this podcast yet, please go back to the episode titled Manifestation 101, where you'll learn the basics of neural manifestation to truly understand this process. So go ahead and check out those free resources, the motivation, the free clarity exercise, and the episode Manifestation 101, all linked below. And in an effort to make sure to have representation in this process series, go ahead and submit any process testimonials you have, especially to our LGBTQ plus community, our BIPOC, as well as the WISE, which is anyone in the community who is 45 and over. All right, we'll be back next week. <laughs>